0: Our scripture today will be Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 41. Acts chapter 2, 22 through 41. This is the Word of God. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God had made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the Apostles, "'Brothers, what shall we do?' And Peter said to them, "'Repent and be baptized, every one of you, "'in the name of Jesus Christ, "'for the forgiveness of your sins, "'and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. "'For the promise is for you and for your children "'and for all who are far off, "'everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: All right. Thank you, Clay, for the prayer, and Zach, for, for the reading. Uh, in uh, January. Yes, sir. Oh, the three to five-year-olds. That's what the waving was about. Three to five-year-olds are now dismissed to go with the uh, Lewis's. All right. We would figure that out sooner or later. All right. Very good. All right. Well, yeah, so uh, January 11th, 1989, Ronald Reagan gave his farewell speech to the nation. Uh, He did this from the Oval Office. Some of you might have seen it. Um, And uh, and at one point in his speech, he said this. He said, I won a nickname, the great communicator, but I never thought it was my style or the words that I used that made a difference. It was the content. I was not a great communicator, but I communicated great things. He said he wasn't a good communicator, but he communicated great things. And I think that's what makes a great evangelist is not someone who's just good with their words, but someone who knows that they are communicating great things. The Apostle Paul gets this. He, uh, uh, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 2 that being a great speaker isn't... Um, he, he didn't say, hey, this is, a, this is a big plus. He actually said it might be a negative for an evangelist. He said this in 1 Corinthians 2, Says when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This one great thing, and I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that. Your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Today, we're going to look again at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And I think it'd be fair to call this the first Christian sermon. And I'll be honest, as far as sermons go, I don't find Peter's preaching skills to be all that amazing in this first sermon. I've heard and read better sermons. I've heard sermons that made me cry. I've heard sermons that made me laugh. I've heard sermons that, that blew my mind, that opened up these new categories. But what makes this sermon great is not Peter and his preaching skills. It's that he's communicating great things. And really, for the first time, the gospel is being preached to the, math, to, to, to the masses. And what Peter has in regards to content is literally the greatest news that the world has ever known. And and for that reason, along with the work of God in human hearts, it might be the most persuasive and consequential sermon ever given. So so today, as we consider Peter's sermon, I I, want to do so by by considering three questions. Uh, First, why were the people persuaded? Second, how did they respond? And third, How should we respond to all this? So first, why were the people persuaded? They were not persuaded because Peter was persuasive. They weren't persuaded because Peter really nailed the sermon. And it seems like the sermon was probably somewhat spontaneous. Like he wasn't spending the week before trying to get everything just right. This is a moment that he was in. But they were persuaded because Peter had something really great to say. And his message was focused on a person, on Jesus, and significant events surrounding him. And so I want to to look real quickly at three things that were compelling and validating about Peter's message about Jesus. So the first thing he talked about were the signs and wonders of Jesus. Second is the resurrection of Jesus. And third is the fulfillment of prophecy. So first, Jesus came performing signs and wonders. Look at Acts 2 verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Now, some people sometimes wonder why there are all these miracles in the Bible and there seem to be no miracles in real life, like like in our day. One reason for that is one of the primary reasons that God used these signs and wonders was to validate his messengers. So that's why we have a lot of miracles around Moses and Elijah and Jesus and the apostles, and maybe no signs that validate me or you. Jesus was healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, turning water into wine, raising the dead. And he did this quite a bit during his ministry. He was doing this a lot. And and many people there would have either seen it themselves or known somebody that was an eyewitness to Jesus doing this. So we should, we should not, so, so we should be okay with not seeing these kinds of miracles in our day. God's done enough to validate himself and he has zero obligation to validate himself to you by performing some type of thing in our day. So if if you are one who who tends to think like this, God, you really need to show up right now. God, you really need, God, if you're there, then do that. If you tend to think like that, and I feel drawn towards that often, if you tend towards that, You need to stop it. He's already done enough to to validate himself. He has zero obligation to do anything else. He's done enough. And one of the main reasons he's done enough and he's not obligated to to perform some kind of miracle for us is that he's done enough specifically in the resurrection. The second thing I want to talk about that was validating to Jesus. Look at Acts 2, 23 to 24. Peter says, says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The resurrection is the validating moment of Christianity, even more than the cross. Being crucified is not a miracle. But coming back to life three days later after being crucified, that's a miracle and that's validating. And look, the resurrection should be your anchor. Not whether or not God answered some prayer or showed up in some certain way. It's, it's, the, it's the resurrection that needs to be the anchor for our souls. And, and we're all kind of prone to, to doubting to, to differing degrees, I would imagine. And, and you know what it takes for doubt to enter my mind? You know what it takes for me to doubt? Not much. I mean, a bad day. And I'm just thinking, is God really there? A a good prayer, a good genuine prayer that I can back up with Scripture goes unanswered. Is God really there? I mean, it can be something silly. Like, I'm in a hurry, and I want a green light, and I get a red light, like three in a row. It can be a little bit more serious. It can be tragedies, suffering things in the Bible that I don't understand. I mean, I'm in the Bible a lot and I got some things that, some knots I can't quite untie. But you know why those doubts are never powerful enough to really take me away? The resurrection. If my Christian faith was based on things going well, prayers answered, bad things not happening to good people, then I'd be in trouble because things don't go well, prayers go unanswered, Bad things happen, but my faith needs to be be anchored to the resurrection of Jesus, and yours should too. And if it's not, then you should know it's going to wander off in a lot of different directions. Now, the third thing that was validating and compelling about Peter's message was that he spoke of Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy. Peter quotes Psalm 16 in Acts 2, uh, verse 25. He says this, it says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You, you have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter goes on to explain there that what, what David was foreseeing and what he was pointing to was the resurrection of of Jesus. The resurrection wasn't just something that ended up happening to Jesus. It was the fulfillment of prophecy, of prophecy. It was the fulfillment of Scripture. It had to happen. Now, on this idea of prophecy, Josh McDowell says that Jesus Jesus fulfilled more than 300 prophecies, whether they were major or minor, but there's more than 300. And so the resurrection isn't the only prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. He was. He had to be born in Bethlehem, He was uh, to be preceded by a unique messenger. That's John the Baptist. He rode a donkey into Jerusalem. He was betrayed by a friend. He was betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. He would be silent before his accusers. And he died having his hands and feet pierced. And this is just a few of more than 300 that could be read. Uh, And a guy named Peter Stoner uh, wrote a book called Science Speaks. Uh, And in it, he addressed this, uh, this unbelievable uh, fulfillment of all these prophecies. And he said that the odds of any one man fulfilling these prophecies are one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, when I say one in 10 to the 17th power, that you probably don't have a category for that number. I mean, I mean, I don't really have a category for the number. And uh, Peter Stoner knew that we didn't have a category for a number that big. So he gave an analogy of what it would be like. And here's what he wrote in his book. So with the idea of how many is... 10 to the 17th power. So said, take that many silver dollars, so 10 to the 17th power, and lay them across the state of Texas. And in doing so, we'd find that they would stack up across the state two feet deep. But wait, there's more. Now mark one of the silver dollars and stir up the entire mass of coins, then blindfold an enthusiastic volunteer and tell him that he can travel as far as he likes across the state of Texas, but that he must... Pick out the marked silver dollar. That is how difficult it would be for one single man to fulfill the 300 plus prophecies. Peter did not need to be a great communicator. He had something great to communicate. And that beats being a great communicator every time. And that is why people were persuaded. It wasn't because Peter nailed the sermon. He had something great To communicate. Now, second, how did they respond? All right, so after Peter talks about Jesus being validated by signs and wonders, the resurrection and prophecies, he goes on to tell them this in verse 36. Uh, He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made them both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter communicates something great, and the great thing he is communicating is that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He is now seated at the right hand of God. He is the one that Israel has been anticipating. And oh yeah, one more thing, you killed him. I mean, this, all this that he's going towards, he's saying, you put this man to death. And then look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. And whenever real change happens, Something must first happen in the heart. In Romans 1, we read about the darkened heart. In Romans 2, about the hardened heart. And so if you're a Christian, before you were a Christian, you had a darkened and hardened heart. And if you are now a Christian, what happened to you is something that happened to Lydia in Acts 16. We read that God opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. Look, part of the power of the gospel is the fulfillment of the new covenant in an individual and what, what that does to its heart. So when someone becomes a Christian, they don't just hear this idea that Jesus died for sins and then logically they say, okay, sure. That's not the only thing that's happening. What's happening is something miraculous that's happening internally that's transforming the heart. And in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, we see this foretelling of what that would be. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will pour my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Anyone who ever becomes a Christian or even can become a Christian, needs a new heart. And this new heart causes them to be no longer cold towards the things of God, but instead tender towards the Lord. And this new heart even causes them to obey and follow Jesus. This is what is sometimes called the doctrine of regeneration. This is what the Apostle Paul called uh, in Ephesians 2, being dead in your sins and being made alive in Christ. And regeneration is not something we can make happen by good teaching. Regeneration does not happen by good apologetics or arguments. And hear this, regeneration does not happen by good parenting. There is no parenting technique that can transform a darkened hard heart to a soft heart that wants to follow God. Some people this day, they hear this sermon, and they thought that that Peter and the rest of these apostles, they're either drunk or crazy, or both. Their hard hearts were not receptive to the message. But others there that day were experiencing the work of the new covenant. They were experiencing their heart being transformed, and that's why they were cut to the heart. And look, I don't want to put too much weight on our experiences, personal experience, because they can be all over the map. But but many of you can relate to this. You can remember a a time of a softening of your heart towards God. You can remember a time where you didn't have much of a tender heart towards God. Maybe God was something you had to put up with. You had to go to church. You had to do right. It was just you saw Christianity or Jesus as a bunch of rules or uh, things you didn't necessarily enjoy. But there was something that happened at some point in your life where, where perhaps you, you began to, to to become tender towards God. Perhaps you saw your own sin to be really sin. You know, one of the functions of the Spirit of God in a person is the conviction of sin. And this is what will we'll draw, we'll draw a person towards Jesus is a deep sense of something's wrong with me. You know, if, if you've ever seen this movie, I don't recommend it really. Uh, it's been a long time. Uh, Liar, Liar with Jim Carrey. There's this part, kind of the, the, the idea is uh, this, this thing happens to him at the beginning of the movie. Like, he's a big liar. He's always lying. And something happens in the beginning of the movie where he can no longer tell lies. And so at one point, he's, you know, talking with his wife or somebody, I can't remember what's going on, but he was late picking up his kid or he didn't show up at the kid's practice. And he just kind of blurts out, like, I didn't do it because I'm a bad father. And it's kind of like this moment, it's like, huh, I guess I wasn't lying there because he couldn't lie. And he said that he was a bad father. And I think what has to happen, I mean, y'all, we we all come into this world sinful. And just as sure as we come in sinful, we come in thinking we are good. And our sinfulness can certainly be explained, right? And so there's something that has to happen deep inside us that can't be taught or, or explained. Something has to happen inside of our souls where we see something's wrong with me. I remember when, when the Lord was doing this in my life, there was a summer and I realized I'm, I'm going too far away from God. This is, I'm not going down a good path. So logically it all lined up. I'm going down the wrong path. I should be more spiritual. I should follow Jesus. And so the, the first half of the summer, I kind of isolated myself and I was reading my Bible. I was praying. I was, I was doing good. And then the, the second half of the summer, it was like I was worse than ever before. And by God's grace, you know what dawned on me? I can't change. It was so kind of the Lord to give me a moment to try really hard and then to see I can't do it. Something's wrong with me. And if you haven't gotten there, then you don't know the sweetness of the gospel. You should know that, that, that the, the new covenant When this happens, the new covenant is at work in your soul. And if you have a tenderness towards God, and if you have this sense, something's wrong with me, and and it's driving you not towards self-justification, but it's driving you towards Christ, you should know that is the supernatural work of the new covenant that is happening in your soul. So Peter is talking about Jesus, who he was, what he did. Then he drops the hammer and he says, you crucified him and the people were cut to the heart. They got it. They didn't say, well, not really. Or they didn't explain themselves. They didn't go into this rant. just like, well, let us explain kind of our background, how we were raised and what we were thinking. They were just cut to the heart and they were cut to the heart. And they said this, what do we do? Peter says this in verse thirty-eight. Peter said to them, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." What should you? What What do we do? Repent and be baptized. The response that someone who is cut to the heart is to have is to repent and be baptized. Now, maybe my experience is unique, and it's not like yours. The events and organizations I was around, I'm sure, were, we're different. Than a lot of you. But for me, the call to repent and be baptized as a response to the gospel was overshadowed by the call to to pray the prayer or to accept Jesus or to ask Jesus into your heart, whatever that means. And so, what would happen for me, I remember like whenever I heard that, like, hey, if you want to not go to hell, accept Jesus, raise your hand, sure, (laughs) come forward. I'm coming, (laughs) you know, whatever it takes. If all I got to do is not go to hell, is come forward and then in. And so what happened with that is that every time I was at a conference or heard you need to do this, I wasn't sure if I was saved or not. So I just kind of did it every time. And so what can happen in this is that people can kind of hear this kind of vague notion. They don't even hear the gospel. They don't even hear that, that they're sinful. Christ died for their sins and that the Christ's righteousness can be imputed to them. Their sin can be imputed to Christ. And that's how they're... Sin. They don't even hear the gospel. They just have this idea of asking Jesus to your heart or accepting Jesus. And, and even on that note, because some of you might go to your mind and think, well, Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Well, that's not talking about the door of a heart. I don't know if there's any talk about a door of a heart in scripture anyway. And it's, and it's not talking about conversion. And I think sometimes those kinds of methods like praying the prayer or asking Jesus into your heart or trying to get people saved like that can lead to a lot of confusion. Or, or worse, worse than confusion is false conversion, cheap grace, and false assurance. But if a person is convicted of their sin and they believe the gospel, then the New Testament is clear how they should respond. They should repent, turn from their sin to God, and be baptized. And look, repentance and baptism doesn't save anyone Only the blood of Christ can make our dirty hands clean. It's simply the response of someone who believes the gospel. They turn from sin to follow God. They become a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And that is what baptism symbolizes, that the old person is gone and the new person has raised to walk in newness of life. So if you have not been baptized as a believer, then you should be baptized. And if you have been baptized as a believer, you need to remember it. Remember that the old you is dead and that the new you has been raised to life, to walk in newness of life. And whenever those old sins, the, the, the shame from your past begins to crepe up and says, Remember when you did that? Remember when you said this? That's not you. That's the old you. And you're, you're worse than that. Your capacity for evil was, was, was worse than that. And whenever your old sins begin to call you and will you, remember that's not who you are anymore. That person has been buried. Now, back to our text. Peter preaches the gospel and the people respond. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. So now, what does this mean for us? Considering this sermon, how should we respond to all this? My third point, how should we respond? I think there's three takeaways for us as we consider Peter's sermon. Uh, One, Peter was Christ-centered in his message and purpose. He wasn't focused on how to make people's lives better. He was laser-focused on the person and work of Christ. So, we should be more focused on Christ than improvement. Here's what I mean. We shouldn't just want a better marriage. We should want a marriage that is a picture of Christ in the church. And move towards that we shouldn't just want well-behaved happy children we should want children who put their hope in jesus and we shouldn't just want people to like us we should want people to worship jesus second we need to remember that it begins with the heart we need to pray that we will be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's work on our heart. That we will see sin as ugly and not be seduced by the illusions of beauty or joy. You know, the, the thing with small sins, the, the thing with small sins is that it has an effect of dulling our, the, the, the Spirit's conviction in our life. And there's some sins that we all can kind of get into. And we, we, we know and this, isn't, this isn't the end of the world, it's isn't a big deal. But what it does is it dulls your conviction to the Holy Spirit that we would see those things as deadly traps and that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness and that we would genuinely experience the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I have become more and more convinced over time that all of us ultimately do Whatever it is we want to do. Not what we think we should do. Not what we know is best. Not what we think is most godly. We do what we want to do. So we need God through the Holy Spirit to make us want what He wants. As, as was promised in the New Covenant, Ezekiel 36. And honestly, when that happens, when, when God begins to transform our wants, after that, it gets kind of easy. Even when it's hard, it can become like what Augustine said. He says, love God and do what you please. Third, we need to live a life of repentance. Martin Luther said it well in the first of his 95 theses. He said, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ will the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. I don't think any of us would deny that we're sinners. I think we'll all sign up. If if who's a sinner here, we'd all raise our hand. But I wonder how many of us actually repent for our sins and and do so specifically to God and verbally to others. There's a big difference between conceding, I'm a sinner, who's not? And saying, there's a specific thing that happened today that I need to apologize for and, and ask for your forgiveness. So, may God help us to view our lives through the lens of the gospel that we would see everything revolving around a person, around Jesus Christ, that everything is from Jesus and for Jesus. And may we live lives that correspond to our baptism, constantly putting away the old and putting on the new. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the work of your son, Jesus Christ who did all things necessary in his life, death, and resurrection, that we might be reconciled to you. Thank you for the new covenant that you give us your spirit, that you you don't just tell us to try harder, do better, uh, but you give us your spirit changing our desires, making us hunger and thirst for righteousness, giving us a strong distaste for sin. Would we not uh, think lightly of that? Would we be sensitive to that? And would you help us to constantly live lives of repentance. And Jesus, is in your name that we pray. Amen.